This episode of the Bellator Christie Podcast is in honor of Craig Howell. Craig Howell was a deacon at the first church I served as pastor at the First Baptist Church of Sunset Harbor. Even though Craig has now passed into eternity, we'll always miss him and await the day that we'll be able to see him again at Jesus' feet. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Ronan, Montana and Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast. And we start off with the word of the Lord, coming this time from John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, We're winding down our summer interview series and uh, I'm hoping that some topic uh, caught your ear and it caught your attention and caused you to maybe uh, dig a little deeper on that topic uh, praying that something blessed you from this series um, we're going to be doing a uh, uh, recaps uh, a recap of the series um, along with the Q&A um, if anybody has any questions um, go ahead and get them into us at the Bellator Christie uh, email website or a website email address um and uh we'll we'll add that into our recap um of the series um but uh today we got uh, another interview coming up and uh i'm gonna just bring on uh mr soggy socks brian <laughs> let's go ahead and welcome on brian <laughs> mr soggy socks is right I, I think i really need to start <laughs> singing the song sitting by the dock of the bay because with as much water as we've had uh we it, it seemed like we could sit at the dock of a bay just behind the house <laughs> it's unbelievable <laughs> Six oh, inches goodness. of rain last night and an additional four inches today. It's insane. <laughs> I can't even imagine. I mean, we 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 wouldn't have any dirt left on our on our on our hills out here. That kind of that kind of rain. Maybe that's why the hills down here are so much lower than the ones over there. Oh yeah, that's good. Good point. Good point. They all just kind of wash downhill, smoothed out. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Yeah, wow. That's uh, I mean, but yet then then uh, come winter time when we get uh, you know a foot foot and a half of snow um, in one night, you know that's nothing, you know. So I guess it's it kind of goes around. I guess paradise has its price. <laughs> I would just I would just as soon have the rain than the snow, though. To be honest with you, well, c- come on down to North Carolina. We'll take you. I just pack it up in barrels, bring it up here. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Campbell, he's just a state north of us. Virginia, North Carolina, we'll both take you. That's right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. 
Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, so you want to go ahead and welcome on our guest? <laughs> yeah, we want to welcome with us Dr. Ronnie Campbell. He is a professor extraordinaire at Liberty University and no stranger to the Bellator Christie podcast. And today we're talking about his book, which is very, very, very good. Um, a very good book indeed, called Worldviews and the Problem of Evil, A Comparative Approach. So without further ado, let's welcome on Dr. Ronnie Campbell. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian Curtis. Uh, good yes, to be back sir. here. Oh man, I saw you. I saw it on the list of, of we were going to have Ronnie back on, and I'm like, yeah, that was good because I, <laughs> I I enjoyed every bit of the last one, man. It was a good time. We need to have some sort of like a like fanfare clapping and maybe some whistles <laughs> and maybe some Fourth of July fireworks or something going off. I don't have that sound effects board. You, you know, <laughs> Doctor Cam, is it okay if we call you Ronnie? Oh, sure. That's not a problem at all, Brian. <laughs> Just want to make sure, you know. Uh, yeah, you, I'm not one of those who, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't have to have people call me doctor, so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're looking to eventually maybe get the podcast uh, where we can air it, the video as well, like on like YouTube. And so I can almost envision having like little little, little hands clapping as we go through <laughs> some <of the> podcasts. <laughs> I want a little clown running across the bottom of the screen. <laughs> yeah, th- th- this this may anyway. be, this may prove a very interesting endeavor indeed. <laughs> Some people might think you should stick to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I tell everybody I have a face made for radio, so. <laughs> but, so what you're saying is I'm the beautiful one here? Well, you know, Beauty and the Beast. Yes. <laughs> Maybe Bellator Christ will be turned into Beauty and the Beast. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Jeez. Well, I tell you, let's jump into this before it gets much deeper. Uh, Ronnie, what is a worldview? You talk about worldviews in your book, uh, Worldviews and the Problem of Evil. So first, if you will, describe for us what is a worldview? Now, it's kind of interesting because in the last, uh, in our last uh, time together, I think I described worldviews there, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I probably describe it differently in, in each of these books. And generally, when I think of a worldview, it's, it's a way of just understanding the world in which we live in. It includes, uh, you know, uh, all those um, beliefs that we have. And I, I would even include in that, like, dispositions and things like that. Uh, but in the way that I'm using it in worldviews and the and the problem of evil, um, I actually see the worldview as something more like a metaphysical system. And the reason that I view it this way is because when I think of a metaphysical system, I'm thinking about what is ultimately real. Uh, you know, the God and whether there's a God or not, what this God is like, what this God is in, in relation to the world and so forth. And so a metaphysical uh, system is looking more at um, what is what is the ultimately real aspect of that. So, so it's kind of like, uh, so it'd be. I mean, could you use the word? Could you use the word paradigm in this? Of how, or or would it be kind of not not part of that? I mean, I think yeah. I mean, paradigm would work. Uh, it, it is a paradigm of sorts when you think okay. of of. of what God is like and if there is such a being as God and, and what does God's relationship to the world is like. Yeah. So I think, I think, yeah, you could probably use paradigm there. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, 
So in your book, you discuss four overarching metaphysical systems. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you describe the four? And you, and you list the four being naturalism, pantheism, process panentheism. So I want to make the distinction panentheism as opposed to pantheism, and then theism. So, so what are these uh, four uh, metaphysical systems? Yeah, so we think about naturalism, right? Naturalism is the idea that there is no such being as God. There's nothing that's supernatural. Uh, and, and, and also we can distinguish between what we call metaphysical naturalism and methodological naturalism. Uh, methodological naturalism is just basically, um, it, it, it's that uh, way of pursuing life and trying to understand life as if there is no God. And you see this a lot with the sciences, uh, you know, approaching the sciences as if there is no God and so forth. Now, a methodological naturalist could actually be, could hold to a belief in God. And I, I can give you a good example of this in uh, pop culture. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched the show, The X-Files. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but in The X-Files, you have Dana Scully and you have Fox Mulder. Well, Fox Mulder's kind of like the believer in the supernatural and so forth. Uh, but yeah, he doesn't believe that there's a God. Now, Dana Scully, on the other hand, she is like a medical doctor. Uh, she's all rational. Uh, she doesn't look for the supernatural explanation, yet she's a fetist. So <laughs> she's a methodological naturalist with respect to how she, she operates and lives in the world. Um, but uh, she's a fetus, so she believes that there's a God. It's just that, you know, she doesn't look for the supernatural explanation. Hmm. That's that's a methodological naturalist. Metaphysical naturalists are such that uh, they believe that there is no such person as God. There is no God, supernatural, miracles, angels. And, and basically, for a methodological, na- or sorry, a metaphysical naturalist, uh, you know, basically when we die, that's it. Uh, we become worm food, and, and that's all there is to it. Uh, we think of human nature. Uh, human beings are nothing more than meat machines, right? There is no soul, no spirit. There's no immaterial self. Um, and usually naturalists are physicalists or materialists with respect to human nature. So, so that's naturalism in a nutshell, and, and we could probably work out some more details. What we were mostly, what I'm mostly concerned with in the book is metaphysical naturalism. Uh, so, so the next one you mentioned is pantheism. Pantheism is the idea that God is identical to the world, uh, and so there are different ways that pantheists hash this out. Uh, you have one kind of pantheist called a monist which monists argue basically that there's just one kind of substance, one thing. Uh, there is no duality, you and I. We're all just part of the, the, the divine uh, and, and so forth. Um, and, and, and so that's the monist. Now, there are pantheists who are also pluralists. Um, they, they take it that, um, you know, God is the, the whole encompassing unity. And so you have the whole unity, and which includes... Uh, you know, everything. So it would include the good, the evil, you and me, and so forth. Uh, but, but but what's divine is, is there's this overarching divine unity. That's, that's pantheism. Uh, now, there are some others that there are some, some different kinds of pantheism other than those two, but I think those are probably the, the, the main two. Uh, the third uh, major system is what we call panentheism. Now, I want to be clear. Um, when we're talking about panentheism, pan meaning all, and then in 
theism. So all in God or God in all ism, that kind of thing. And so for pantheists, uh, they, they take, or sorry, panentheists, uh, they take it that uh, in some way the universe is in God or God is in the universe, but there's a sense in which God isn't identical to the universe. God transcends the universe in some kind of way. Uh, think of the analogy something like a um, a soul to a body, right? Mm. Uh, the, so so that, that's a uh, metaphor that's often used for the panentheist. Um, and, and so there are a variety of different panentheists out there, but what I really focused on in the book is this specific kind called process panentheism. And process panentheists uh, will argue that all things in the world is in pro- are in process. Everything is in process. Even God uh, is in process. And so uh, you, you think about... Um, uh, the it, it, like Anselm's idea that God is that in which nothing greater can be conceived. Well, they would buy into that, but they would say that God does grow in greatness. Hmm. And so they take it in that sense that God is not already the greatest conceivable being, uh, but he can also grow in his greatness. Um, so, so process panentheism is also grounded in the metaphysics of process philosophy. Alfred, Alfred, North Whitehead um, was kind of the founder of process metaphysics. And there's a lot that goes into the process metaphysics. I'm sure if you, as you were reading the chapter, you could see, uh, you know, the idea of these actual occasions and initial aims and so forth. Uh, so so um, maybe we could talk a bit about more about that later. Um, but for process panentheists, uh, they take it that God is just one part of ultimate reality so for like a christian or a theist we're going to take it that god is ultimate and that he's created the world uh the world um depends on god for his existence and so forth um god in no way uh or depends oh, sorry what did I, what did i say there just now <laughs> the world depends on god right did right. i say that I, okay. I think so. <laughs> I thought for a second I got that backwards and I was like, wait, no, 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 that's the process panentheist. Okay. So the process panentheist is going to say, well, no, I mean, in some way, God also depends on the world for God's self actualization. The theist is going to say, no, God created the world ex nihilo. God is ultimate. God does not depend on the world for his existence, uh, but rather the world is contingent and depends on. God for its existence. Uh, that's the theistic view. Right. Uh, so, so the process panentheists are going to say, well, there's three as- or three parts to what makes up the ultimate. It's it's God, it's everything else, and this mysterious thing called creativity. And so, creativity is kind of like a metaphysical principle that's behind the goings on of things in the in the world. And so, even God is influenced by this this metaphysical principle of creativity. And so God is an ultimate in the process theist view. Uh, in some ways, I don't know if you've read C.S. Lewis's Miracles, mm-hmm. but in in Miracles, Lewis argues that, yeah, you can have a God in naturalism. And you're thinking, what are you talking about, Lewis? How could there be a God in naturalism? Well, he says, yeah, of course there could be a God in naturalism so long as that God is coming about through the natural processes. And in some ways, that's what you get with process panentheism, is that uh, God is just one thing within the universe. 
And so he, he is, you know, he is just like you and I work. He's caught up in these processes and so forth. Uh, and, and, um, God is a part of the universe. Uh, so that's process panentheism. And the last one is theism. And Christians are theists, believe that God created the universe ex nihilo, uh, whereas the panentheists, they'll say, well, God created the world ex materia, out of already pre-existing things. Theists say, no, God created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. Uh, no pre-existing materials, uh, but using his own divine power to bring this world into being. Um uh, there's a creator-creature distinction in theism. Uh, you know, uh, there's that dependence of the cre- of the creature on the creator. Um, we also would take it that for theists, God is you know all powerful, all knowing, so omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, all good, uh, and eternal, and so forth. Um, so, so that's the four basic views in a nutshell, and we could we could hash out more what that looks like uh, as we go along. So so with open theism, would you say that it would be in the process panentheist viewpoint since they believe that God, uh, in, in some, some views, uh, doesn't know the uh, future, in some ways learn the future as it goes as about? Uh, no, actually, I wouldn't. I would put them actually in the theist camp, and I know some people may take that surprisingly. Um, a lot of a lot of people do see open theists as uh, uh, process theists, um, but that's not always. Uh, they don't share uh, all the the same beliefs that a process theist has. Uh, for example, I mean, take someone like William Hasker or or various others, they would hold to the idea that God created ex nihilo. That's a that's a very theistic belief, right? Uh, they would hold that God is omnipotent. Uh, process theists are very hesitant to say that God has any kind of power other than the power to try to influence. Uh, they, they would say God does not cause anything, really, but rather it, it, God sends these what we call initial aims to try to persuade uh uh you know creatures to Mm. to do god's bidding and so forth so god doesn't have any kind of power like we would see in a theistic view open theists wouldn't deny that they would certainly lean to the idea that god gives creatures free will but god could also cause them to do something if he so chose to uh where in the process panentheists would say no that's that's impossible you know it's metaphysically impossible for god to do that um, so, so the other thing is, um, open theists don't deny that God has omniscience. I think that's also a misconception. Uh, they believe that God knows all things that are actual and possible. Um, but they would say, you know, God's knowledge of the future is metaphysically impossible because the future doesn't yet exist. And so if it's truly up to you and me, if we have libertarian freedom, uh, this idea that uh, you know there's nothing outside of us that's causing us to do the action, we have this true capacity to choose between A and B. Um, so if we truly are free, uh, then it's not up to God or anything else to make that decision for us. Then there's no future yet there for God to know. And mm-hmm. so they would say it's a metaphysical impossibility. Um, kind of like what we do with um, uh, omnipotence when we say it's logically impossible for God to create a square circle. Right. They're going to put that in the same category. 
Now, I disagree with the open theists um, on that. I think I think it, it is is a weaker view of divine omniscience. Um, but nevertheless, I would still put them in the theistic camp, even though uh, the future is open. Uh, so, awesome. Curtis, you have any additional questions? I, I was just going to say is that so it sounds kind of like the panentheism uh, view kind of also um, encompasses kind of your new age and, and some of that too, doesn't it? Does right. it not? Okay. I, I would put that in the pantheistic, the pantheistic okay. view. So it's kind of yeah. like in between the two then. Yeah. So pantheism, uh, you, you find a lot of new age uh, thinkers that buy into um, monism. So, so uh, the idea that there really is no duality, you want to become one with the universe and so forth, um, yeah. very much a, a new age kind of thinking. Um, so I, I would put them more in, in, in that uh, pantheistic okay. um, spiritualism and so forth. So why do you think naturalism, and it seems like naturalism, when it comes to the sciences, when it comes to many uh, fields of study, it seems like naturalism is kind of the default position in many cases. Why do you think it's gained such popularity popularity to the level and degree that it has? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with secularization and then also, like you said, the inf- you know, uh, emphasis on the sciences, uh, you know, no longer needing something like a divine revelation and so forth. I mean, uh, why would we need revelation when we, we can, you know, use science and all these modern techniques to try to figure out what's wrong with humanity and so forth? So I think that's something uh, that goes along with it. I mean, that's a very uh, truncated and a very, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, simple <laughs> explanation there. Um, but I would say that you see it a lot in academia, but I'm not so sure that I would say that naturalism is is probably the most prevalent. I would say we're moving more towards a uh, pantheistic, uh, spiritualism, new age. Yep. I, I, see, I see a lot of that. One of the reasons why I, I wanted to talk about this in the book is because I don't see a lot of Christians like evangelicals really addressing uh, this issue of pantheism. I also think that we're seeing a lot of panentheism, specifically process panentheism, infiltrating Christianity. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're seeing uh, major thinkers who are being influenced by it. Um, uh, I think Thomas Ord, right? Thomas J. Ord. Uh, Although I wouldn't put, I wouldn't classify him as a process panentheist. Um, he certainly has been influenced by them. Um, I, I think of uh, others. Uh, well, I mean, I'm just I, I'm thinking of um, uh, certain denominations as well that have been influenced by process panentheist thought because uh, a lot of the people who are coming out of Claremont University, uh, you know, which is uh, historically, I, I think it's it's been associated with the Methodist Church. Um, but you're, you're seeing, um, you know, thinkers coming out of Claremont, which is kind of like the bastion school for uh, process panentheism. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, you know, I remember uh, 
and not, not trying to defer the or take the uh, divert the podcast, but I, I remember hearing someone say something about, uh, and it's been years ago that it was said that that it would be interesting to see how America goes. Because if America goes the way of spiritualism, you, you may have more. And this is a guy who was a missionary. I wish I could think of his name offhand, but he was talking about the spiritual battles he saw in in some of the places he went. He's and he said it would be interesting to see how America goes because if it replaces uh, the if the secularization goes the way of spiritualism but not in the area of realm of God, that we could very well see some of the spiritual, uh, which, of course, we're already seeing the spiritual conflict all around us, but it could be amplified uh, in, in some degrees. And I, I found that an interesting uh, interesting theory, and, and to hear that, which I agree with you, I never had really given that much thought that, that we are going towards a very spiritual area, but not necessarily the down the Christian pathway. Um, it does... It does would would open Pandora's box to kind of wonder, you know, are we are we going to see more spiritual uh, battles in in the present time than what we've seen, and maybe maybe we already are and just don't realize it. Yeah, I mean, even uh, things like um, paganism is starting to uh, you know start back up again. I, I I have a relative right now who who uh, is a pagan, and so really, uh, you know. Yeah, and so I mean, you think Wicca was was big there for a bit. Um, yeah, I think people are looking for something spiritual. They're looking for something. Right. I, I think when we look at naturalism and, and just science itself, people are starting to wake up and say, "Wait, science really isn't answering all of our problems." Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, so they're wanting something more, but they're not wanting to go by way of traditional religion. Uh, I think it's almost a resorting back to to paganism and, and neo-paganism and spirituality and things like that. Uh, Buddhism is also very popular right now or some kind of, uh, you know, people also like to just uh, be eclectic or, uh, you know, syncretistic with their yeah. worldviews, uh, just blending all these uh, different concepts and ideas and forming their own thing, you know. Kind of like the Baha'i religion. American individualism at its core, you yeah. know. <laughs> so it'd be kind of like a, kind of like your uh, salad bar religion, whatever That's you right. want, whatever whatever makes it sound good. Yeah, ice cream which, parlor, you know. Which, hey, I like a little bit of yeah. uh, moose tracks and uh, hey. Superman, and hey, you know. got to get the pralines and cream in there. <laughs> or you could go the route of uh, Burger King, have so, it your way. <laughs> so, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, if you think about it, what we're seeing now, what you what you're describing, and what you're what you're kind of talking about here, if we look back in history, we're just seeing the 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 pendulum swinging back and mm-hmm. forth again, and now we're seeing seeing what you know you came out of um, Christianity um, as, as such a hard move, and then it went into um, you know some some you could say naturalistic type and then going into uh, the mid age, the mid, uh, the the medieval ages and such and coming through all of that, you're seeing that same thing, but are we seeing it come at a faster pace because of technology we have and 
the communication we have or or what are we seeing here that that's actually different than what we've seen in the his, historically in the past i just think a lot of people don't know how to navigate everything right now i mean um you know think about even in teaching right now i mean i i've, I've been teaching uh since 2006 right and uh been teaching here at Liberty uh, residentially since 2017 and just interacting with students. Um, I, information's everywhere. They could find all the information they need. And, and I think really what we've got to focus on is just helping people to, to be wise, uh, to think through uh, all the information and so forth. Uh, but what you're saying is 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 right on, uh, Curtis. That I mean, I remember when I was studying uh, youth ministry, I read a book. Um, I forget the name of it, but uh, under, understanding today's youth culture. And back then, when I read this, this was like in the '90s and and early 2000s. He was saying like youth culture is changing every five years. I mean, forget five years. Really? I mean, it's yeah. changing so rapidly. And, and, and it has to do with just the easy access to social media, information, um, just so many uh, avenues for people to explore all these different things. But yet, um, I, I think there's not a lot of direction that people have. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that reminds me of last week's podcast with Manuel Boglio. He was talking right. about youth ministry and how much, how many ideas are coming from TikTok. I, I don't even know. I thought it was a clock. Whenever I thought it was a cl- app for a clock when I first heard it, I was like, "What is this?" Hey, isn't that the clock on Blue's Clues? <laughs> yeah, Tickety or something. Oh my goodness! I just can't bring myself to TikTok. But he was talking about how youth are—they're flocking to this now, and. I'm glad there's people out there who are able to do it. I mean, my goodness. Sometimes yeah, I've, yeah. I'm, I'm, I find that the more technology advances, the more technologically literate I'm becoming in some <laughs> areas. But, but yeah, it is amen, scary brother. that uh, you know that there's so much of this stuff out there, and you know some of us don't know how to use some of this stuff. Yeah, the, but uh, yeah, I, the only thing I have social media is Facebook. So <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty I'm pretty lame, I guess, when it comes to social media. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I do I do have an Instagram account, but I want to be honest with you, I see more things on there that I don't want to see than I necessarily want to see on there. But, but yeah. anyhow, that's neither yeah. here nor there. But as you say, you talk about paganism. All I can think of is that uh, that movie back in the day, uh, uh, Dragnet. I don't know if you guys remember that movie. <laughs> I, I don't think I've watched. I know what you're talking about. And it was a TV show as well, but I don't think. Oh I've seen my the movie. goodness. Yeah. Tom uh, Hanks, I think, was in that. Yeah, Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's right. That's oh, my right. goodness. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dr. Campbell, could you define the term theodicy? Uh, what, what do we mean by theodicy? Yeah, so when we think about a theodicy, it's just justifying God's ways to man, basically. That's kind of the, the, the basic gist of it. Um, but I, philosophers often make a distinction between like a theodicy and a defense, and so we think about it, uh, you know, Alvin Plantinga's favorite, uh, famous book, uh, God, Freedom, and Evil. And in that, Plantinga says, look, we don't have to really say what God's ways are for allowing this evil. All we need to do are give some possible ways in which it could be true. I mean, for all we know, they may not even be true. Uh, but it's just showing that there's no logical 
contradiction here. But I, I, I want to just kind of read something here uh, from the book uh, from William Hasker. I, I think that uh, Hasker gives a pretty good nuance uh, to this idea of, of uh, theodicy, and he, he wants to distinguish more clearly between a theodicy and a defense. Um, he says, a theodicy, uh, well, this is actually me writing it, a theodicy gives possible reasons for why God permits certain evils, whereas a defense is, and this is in the words of Hasker, any counter-argument that attempts to defeat or neutralize an argument from evil without claiming to give God's reasons for allowing the evil in question. And I think the distinction's helpful here. On the one hand, I, I, I like thinking of theodicy in the way that Hasker's doing it here. I, I just see theodicy as more of a possible reason for why God permits these things. Now, I think that allows for the epistemic humility that Plantinga was looking for. But, um, I, you know, I, 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 I may be wrong with the theodicy I give, but I think it's true, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Whereas a defense is just kind of a, basically um, uh, just responding to particular claims and so forth and showing, uh, you know, um, uh, it's, just, it, it's just really, like he says here, to defeat or neutralize an argument from evil without claiming to give God's reasons. And, and I think that's a good nuanced uh, distinction between uh, a theodicy and uh, a defense here. And, and I, I really prefer the way that, that Hasker is using that here. So looking at, you know, because your goal is to show that theism provides the best answer for the problem of evil. So looking at these other three viewpoints how does naturalism fail to answer the problem of evil well i think it, i need to kind of step back a bit and just kind of give a basic idea of what i'm doing in the book to try to, sure. to answer that um, so the basic approach that i'm taking in the book is what we call an abductive approach or inference to the best explanation mm -hmm. and so when we we do the inference to the best explanation uh, there's there's kind of a three-pronged uh, approach to it, right? You, you have the data you got to work with. And, and so the data points that we're looking at are the, 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 the facts uh, of evil themselves. You have natural, moral evil, and you might throw in this other category of what we call horrendous evils. And so you, so you have the facts, okay, or the data points. Um, and then you have criteria. So you, you want to use a number of criteria to... Uh, to judge between various hypotheses, which is the third part. So the criteria might be explanatory scope, explanatory power. Um, it, it would include things like, um, at one I include is livability and so forth. And um, mm -hmm. and I think uh, two others, plausibility, uh, given the other hypotheses, how plausible is this hypothesis given all the other uh, hypotheses and then how plausible is it in and of itself? So, so those are some of the criteria. I list those out in the book. And, and then you have the hypotheses. And so what you want to do is how well do each of these hypotheses then explain the data? And then you're going to use the criteria to judge the various hypotheses. So that's the general approach. And, and so for me, I take it that in order to explain evil, any worldview or any metaphysical system needs to do to explain four things. 
Uh, it needs to be able to explain life. It needs to explain consciousness. It needs to explain uh, what I call the metaphysics of good and evil. And then finally, uh, it needs to explain human responsibility. And so out of all of these, I, you know, I, I think that out of all four of the worldviews that we examine, I, I think that naturalism is probably the least plausible. Um, I don't think naturalism does a really good job of explaining life. Uh, right. You know, I think uh, one of the things that naturalists need to do is they, they have to resort to something like, um, you know, Big Bang cosmology or even be, well, not just Big Bang cosmology, but they have to explain like, okay, so, so you know, given Big Bang cosmology, the universe came to existence a finite time in the past. Well, it seems like the universe itself had a beginning. And so if you're going to say, well, the laws of nature caused the Big Bang, well, where did the laws of nature come from? So mm, there's right, there's a, right. there's not an explanation for that. Well, right. then, well, okay, well, let's, hypo let's you know, let's throw out a, uh, the idea that maybe there's something like a multiverse. Well, that gets into problems itself. And I think people like Paul Davies has really shown or really pointed out some of the weaknesses of this, um, you know. Uh, you, you have to have something like a, a multi-verse uh, generator or something like that to kind of produce these these multiverse. The? And, and really, there's no, there's not any empirical data to really suggest that there is such a thing as a multiverse. And, um, and to add that a couple of things, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but, but even no. with the multiverse, you have a couple of other problems there too. Because like you said, one, you've got the problem that the multiverse would have to be designed. And um, two, the BVG theorem seems to suggest that any universe, materialistic universe, must have a starting point. So even the multiverse right. would have to have a starting point. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, when you, you throw in things like, uh, well, the anthropic principle, uh, you know, uh, that, that uh, the universe has to be just such for life uh, to, to, to exist in the universe that we have. Uh these are some, some major problems, I think, for even getting started uh, with naturalism, explaining life. Okay. Mm. Uh, what I mean, and we could always try to, um, uh, like you said, push it back to the multiverse, but that too, it needs an explanation. It's really just kind of, uh, in some ways, it's bringing your metaphysical conclusions in through the back door right. um, is the way that I view that. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, because with the anthropic principle, oh, yeah, well, this is just what we would expect if there was, you know, this multiverse, <laughs> all these, you know, universes out there. Surely one of them is going to get it right, uh, you know, uh, the gambler's fallacy, yeah. right? Uh, so you've got that. And then um, uh, several other things. Uh, what about consciousness? I mean, consciousness is still it, – it's a huge problem for naturalism. Um, you know, uh, Thomas Nagel, right? A uh, famous mm -hmm. philosopher, no friend of Christian, uh, Christianity in a sense, um, basically finds that naturalistic reductionism when it comes to consciousness is just significantly problematic. Oh, yeah. Um, you, you, you know, uh, so, so for example, when we think of eight, a water, right? Uh, when we get water, uh, what is necessary for us to have water? Well, H2O, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you have to have two hydrogen atoms and, and an oxygen, right? And, and when you put those together, every time, without fail, you get water. But we can't think of our consciousness like 
these chemical reactions that are taking place in the brain. And, and so, so again, that, that seems to be something of a problem uh, with, with naturalism. And you're already striking out on two of the areas here. Right. Now, granted, I mean, maybe, um, maybe if we granted something like, um, you know, uh, uh, evolution or something like that, then, then perhaps you can have a mechanism in place. But, but then again, you, you have the, uh, the, the whole, uh, uh, you know, what got life started, uh, you know, uh, it, it, that's a problem. So there's, there's a lot of different problems I take with naturalism. Well, what about moral or good and evil? Well, to me, again, this is kind of like there's really no good explanation for good and evil. I mean, the, you know, if something happens, it's just a tragedy, you know, as far as like a, a natural disaster. Does. What's that? I said, yeah, it's just what nature does. Yeah, if it's a natural disaster, it's just a tragedy. You can't really say that it's an evil. Um, and even with respect to human agency, well, Generally, naturalists resort to something like um, they resort to something like uh, uh, physicalism or or uh, you know uh, compatibilism or determinism, something like that. And so, so when we think of uh, uh, compatibilism, right? Uh, compatibilistic free will says that you know a person does what he or she most desires. Well, where do the desires come from? Yeah, it's the person doing the action, but the desires are brought about through prior causes. Well, it, it's just this chain of events of uh, you know these this prior chain of causes, right? And, and so, so really, can we even say that a person is responsible for their actions given something like? Uh, compatibilism within and naturalism so 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 you have a number of different problems that you can work through with naturalism and I just don't even think it's a it's a it's a starter I will say that of the four systems is probably the most um, uh, it, 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 it's 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 simple to explain and, and there yeah. is some consistency to mm. it um, but but I think of the four it, it, it's probably the least plausible so, same question for, but this time for pantheism. How does pantheism mm -hmm. tend to fail? And I know, being abductive, we want to, you know, give give credence to. How, how is it most probable that it fails in this endeavor? Yeah, I think there are a number of problems with pantheism. I, I would say that um, pantheism probably explains something like uh, human consciousness better than uh, does naturalism. Uh, and the reason for that is because pantheists are generally open to a variety of different uh, perspectives uh, on, on like, uh, human nature and so forth. Uh, now, there are materialist pantheists, but, but there are many who hold to dualism, uh, that there is a soul and body and so forth. And so I, I think that could, could certainly um, – uh, uh, some also hold to, like, panpsychism. Hmm. the idea that there's this element of the mental in the basic constituents of reality and so some for in some way these these um you know when these um things come together they they form a a a field of mental or like a unified consciousness or something like that hmm. i think it's a far more better explanation than than what we see with naturalism in that regard um uh, so I think that that pantheists can perhaps explain consciousness, uh, given some of these other theories that that pantheists are open to. Um, but um, 
there there are some other problems with pantheism like uh, what exactly is the unity and, and it's really hard to nail down what pantheists believe there isn't really just one pantheist uh, one set of pantheism you know mm -hmm. you you know a theist yeah, you're going to have different views on God's omniscience and different views on God's omnipotence and so forth. Um, but, but there are general agreements on the, the, the main elements of theism, whereas pantheism is very slippery to just try to nail down exactly what they believe. Hmm. Um, and so, so there is problem with the unity. Um, I, I would say that they can at least make some sense of morality in pantheism. Uh, uh, for example, Michael Levine has written on this, and, and one of the things that Levine suggests is that what, uh, you know, that which is good is what promotes the unity. Okay, well, it seems that you have some, at least some kind of objective criteria here for determining what is good, uh, what is the good, and, 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 and then basing one morality off of that. Um, but the problem is, well, where does evil fit into that if, if the yeah. unity consists of both the good and the evil there? Um, and and um, the other thing is, well, uh, think about uh, the eschatological payoff with pantheism, right? Um, you know, yeah, you become, a, the, what's, you, yeah, become a, you become a cricket. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, well, some of the reincarnation uh, views with, with pantheism, uh, but, but in pantheists, they have the, the law of dharma, the law of karma, and so forth. And, and, and so another issue is, what, well, how does a law itself determine how a person ends up in the afterlife, right? How does a law itself judge an individual? I mean, it's not like the laws of nature where, you know, gravity, where you drop something and it falls or, or something like that. Um, how, how do laws do these things that seem to be something that an agent would need to do? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so so that's, that's a particular problem, I think, for the I have the same problem when you watch nature shows and, it, and it, they present, the narrators present nature as if nature is choosing to do something or doing an action, as if nature right. itself is a, an agent, a free agent of some sort. Yeah, I was listening to something today, and the, and the guy uh, was talking about um, uh, Richard Dawkins and, and how evolution, you know, what it seems that evolution is driving us to. Yeah. What, how does evolution drive anything? It's a, it's a mechanism, but it doesn't have any kind of agency, right? It's not um, its own thought. Yeah, I also watched this uh, wildlife show where this guy was, they were marveling at this giraffe, and it says it's a beautiful creation. Then he caught himself, he realized what he said. <laughs> Oops. Ain't that amazing? Yeah. We all, and we, it's Romans 1 again, all over. Yeah, right. Well, even in Jurassic Park, where um, I can't think of the guy's name, he is an atheist from, from his statements on there, but he, but he went to say, he came to the conclusion nature finds a way. Uh, as if nature itself can choose to do something like that. It, yeah. Right, right, yeah. So, same question for pan-in theism. How does pantheism, pan-in theism, generally fail to account for the problem of evil? Yeah, so I, I think that, um, again, there, there's uh, I, some, some problems with the pan-atheistic worldview, um, or the process panentheistic worldview. Um, 
I, I think of the three views, it is the most plausible of them. I think that it can explain uh, certain things like um, consciousness again. Uh, I think it can explain moral responsibility. Uh, uh, generally, panentheists are, or process panentheists hold to libertarian freedom. So there is uh, this aspect of freedom, which I think is, is, is important for explaining moral choice and so forth, or, or moral action. Sorry, I would say moral action there. Um, uh, but there, there are some other problems here. Um, one um, is uh, this, this idea of the, this metaphysical principle we talked about earlier, uh, this, this idea of creativity. Um, that seems to be something we would need to to grant uh, that you know this that there's this this principle out there kind of like Dharma and karma you know mm -hmm. uh, what is this this principle of creativity um, and, and what's fueling it what's what's making it go um, and, and that seems to be a bit problematic for me when we think about um, God it, it seems difficult how God can respond instantaneously so so we talked about um, uh, some of the features of process panentheism earlier but I didn't go into details so let me try to kind of flesh this out a little bit so for process panentheists they take it that uh, God is um, uh, like us in some ways. And so the basic constituents of reality are these things called actual occasions. Now, for Aristotle, it was a substance, right? Substance are just things, uh, you know. But for the process panentheists, they're going to say, no, it's not. It, it, the basic constituents of reality isn't a thing, but rather it, it's an event. And so you're having these actual occasions. I mean, think of an occasion, right? Right now we're having an occasion. We're, mm -hmm. we're meeting together. We're having an event. Well, the basic constituents of reality are the actual occasions. And so these actual occasions are constantly receiving these messages from God, like these, these they're called actual aims, right? God is sending these aims to the occasions. And, and so they're making these like split-second choices, like right. constantly just changing, right, and, and accepting um, that, and then um, and, and then uh, what they do is these occasions form into societies, uh, these aggregates. Uh, you and I would be an example of an aggregate. This coffee mug would be an example of an uh, of uh, of a group or the society of these occasions. Um, and so forth. And, and then God himself would just be a society of these occasions. And, and so in a sense, um, you know, God is the one who gets this ball rolling. He, he gets the thing rolling and, and so forth. But it, it, it seems that it seems really difficult how God is then uh, sending these aims so quickly to these occasions uh, that there seems to be some kind of retarding there mm -hmm. uh, that that takes place. I mean, think about that. I mean, uh, the the instant uh, constantly sending these um, messages out to these these occasions and these societies and so forth. Uh, and so God doesn't have knowledge like the theistic conception of God. Uh, you know, where God just intuitively knows all these things, but rather um, it's quite dependent on the creatures themselves. Uh, so God's knowledge is dependent upon the creatures and their actions and so forth. And so that seems to be something of a problem here. Um, also, uh, process panentheists 
when it comes to like human consciousness, they, they hold to this idea of um, what we call pan-experientialism. It's very much like panpsychism, and so panpsychism it is uh, again the idea that there there are these mental uh, uh, this this aspect, this mental aspect in the basic constituents of reality. Well, for the for the um, process panentheists, it's these panexperientialist uh, idea that that that, that um, the the basic constituents of reality have these experiences, right? And, and so, what they form together into these aggregates, they're they're almost it, it's it's all the individual aggregates and their experiences plus one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. so th- th- this raises um, one of the, the significant problems for the. Pan, uh, the panpsychist view, which also uh, correlates with the panexperientialist view, um, uh, a problem called the combination problem. You know, how is it that they are having this unified consciousness? And, and it, it seems to be a, a major difficulty. And, and if you're, you know, if your readers or, or your listeners are interested, uh, J.P. Moreland has written on this uh, idea of the combination problem quite mm-hmm. a bit. Uh, so that's another problem. Even though I think they're better off than a naturalist, um, I, there's still that problem. Uh, the last thing, again, the eschatological payoff here. So God gets the ball rolling. And, you know, uh, Stephen Davis has written a, 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 an article on this, and, and he likens it to a mad scientist. <laughs> you know, the mad scientist, you know, uh, you think of Frankenstein, right? The Frankenstein monster. He creates the monster, and then what happens? The monster gets out of control. Um, if God cannot do any kind of causing, how can we be assured that God's going to ultimately win in the end? Well, that's true. How can we be sure that God is going to, you know, things are going to go just as God had planned? And so he takes a major risk here, just like Dr. Frankenstein does with the, the Frankenstein monster. You have here the mad scientist, and he's creating this thing with no assurance that things are going to turn out as, uh, as uh, the divine plans it to be. And so what happens in the end if, you know, we get to, you know, you think scientists say that the universe is expanding. Eventually it's either going to die in a heat death or it's going to die in a big crunch. What happens if it, if either of those are the case? Did God actually accomplish what God set out to do according to the panentheistic conception here? So it's a major problem, I think. Um, and then finally, one other thing with the eschatological payoff is that, um, there are some panentheists who believe that the soul will live on, uh, but for the most part, uh, process panentheists don't believe that. They believe that we only live on in the mind of God. And so in a sense, we become a means to an end for God's own you know, uh, life. You, you so, know, I, I wouldn't call N.T. Wright a process panentheist, but his explanation of the intermediate state sounds a lot like that. From some of his writings. Yeah, well, the differ- the main difference is that he holds to the resurrection. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so, I mean, um, there are Christian physicalists. I, I think there are problems with, with Chris- Christian physicalism. Um, I, you know, uh, so for someone like um, Trenton Merricks, right? Trenton Merricks believes that, uh, you know, uh, that uh, the resurrection is very radical because when we die, we die. That's it. But the radical 
nature of the resurrection is that somehow God is going to bring us back in this resurrected state. So, mm. um, I'll be honest, I am a very strong soul survivalist, intermediate state, pres- absent from the body, present with the Lord. So I'll bite my tongue. <laughs> no, I, no, I think so too. And I think Paul actually, um, I was listening to William Lane Craig on this uh, a long time ago in his defenders uh, in his defenders class, and one of the things he pointed out was very striking. Paul not only he he makes a distinction from the body and the, the self. He says to be absent from the body, so the body is not identical to you, right? And so you got an issue of identity here, and so the body is not identical to who you are so if the to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord this means that who you are in your identity is not identical to your body and so you know i think i think um we we got to be careful not be gnostic and downplay uh the, the the wonderfulness of the body because the body expresses creational goodness oh, sure. and we Absolutely. are embodied creatures and, and the body itself is good and that's why that's why Christ took on uh, both uh, you know body and rational soul it was for our salvation of the whole of who we are as human beings both body and soul and so bodies do matter to God right oh, sure uh, but yeah. at the same time I think Paul clearly makes distinction he never uh, he never uh, identifies the person with the soma. Right. Uh, and Craig pointed that out. I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I started looking at some of the passages. And I think he's right. I, I, I just will one say one one thing. The passage of scripture I read, and I'm not a Greek scholar, nor am I the son of a Greek scholar, but <laughs> but you know, you know, you have the intensifiers in the Greek language, and when Jesus mm-hmm. says, "You shall never die." In John eleven, my understanding is reading from the Greek text. It says, "You shall know not never die." So it's like a absolute <laughs> impossibility for the one who lives and believes in Christ to ever die. And so, anyhow, I, I, I told well, I said English, I we don't by. like <laughs> we don't like that double negative. But like I, I even remember in Spanish, you know, the more more negatives, the 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 merrier, right? Yeah. Uh, the no, not never. You know, <laughs> that's that's that means. <laughs> That's that's good right there, you know. <laughs> it's never going to happen. It's, it's intensifying it. That's right. <laughs> so I was actually going to use that in the uh, in a funeral service I have tomorrow, and the uh, one of the family members is a school teacher, so hopefully she won't uh, hit me on the hand with a ruler when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so why is theism? So, so let me just just sure I understand you. You said of all the three options: process, panentheism, pantheism, and naturalism. You said process, panentheism, has the best answers of the three. Um, but why why is theism, in your opinion, the best answer to the problem of evil? And I'm going to kind of wrap up the last three chapters here too, particularly in the love of God, the acts of God, and God's defeat of evil. Yeah, so let me just begin with uh, why I think that deism is the best explanation. Well, I think it doesn't struggle nearly as much with those four areas. Um, For example, uh, life, Uh, you know, uh, it doesn't run up against this idea of infinite regress that you see with maybe like naturalism. Uh, It doesn't, uh, you know, or even uh, even process panentheism. 
so so you have that. I, I think as far as like um, um, the the metaphysics of of good and evil, um, you know, we think of God as the ground for the good. And so uh, we we have then God is the ground for the good, but but also we have uh, something like you know if God gives divine divine commands, and you have something like oughtness. Then uh, so so it does provide some explanation for uh, moral responsibility. Um, if we take evil, um, the classic understanding of evil according to Christianity is the absence of the good. Mm. And, and so I think it provides a good explanation for what evil is there. Although I, I, I think in that chapter, I don't really assume that. I, I, I say that up front, but I, but I think the classical understanding of, of, of evil is a good one. Uh, the, you know, the depravity or, or the, 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 sorry, not depravity, but the um, uh, absence of the good, right? Mm. Uh, uh, Augustine on that. Um, uh, you know, as far as like uh, moral responsibility, uh, you know, I, I, I take it um, personally. I am a, I do hold to libertarian freedom. Uh, I think that is uh, the best explanation for. Uh, I, I think um, the, the capacity that humans have to uh, to um, perform uh, moral actions and so forth, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, I do have some problems with compatibilistic free will. Um, I, I find it hard to square with moral responsibility. And so I think theism allows for that, um, has a great explanation for the afterlife as well. Um, and that God will bring about, um, uh, God will bring about uh, uh, judgment on the world and, and, and all the, all the wrongs of the world will eventually be made right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so forth. Um, uh, so, so I mean, there's a lot more that we could we could say there. But I, I, I think of of the four. I, I would take it as the more plausible. Not uh, it, it's the more plausible uh, given the others. But I also think it's the more plausible in and of itself here. And, and so, in, in that regard, um, and, and there's more I could could really flesh out there. I mean, did you did, is there is there anything particularly that you wanted me to hit on there? Uh, just what you what you feel is the best argument. <laughs> okay, yeah. but there's a lot in the chapter. Yeah, I, it's... <laughs> I I spent a lot of time, just, so I could I could take up the whole podcast really just talking <laughs> about that one chapter. But um, but I think that um, for the most part, um, I just think, uh, and, and this is the point that I make. All the worldviews have to explain the phenomena of evil. Yeah. Theism may not explain every aspect of the phenomena of evil, but it explains it better than the metaphysical rivals. Mm -hmm. And if it explains it better than the metaphysical rivals, then you can't really use the problem of evil against theism. Absolutely. So that was kind of the, the, the gist and point of what I was trying to get at there. And so so I think that's kind of part of, of what I was aiming for in, in, in that book. Um, so then we get into the other aspect, the last part of it. And and here I try to try to move from a just a generic theism to more of a, a Christian theism. And, and I think that are, there are some things that theism itself, uh, you know, has some difficulties explaining. For example, 
how can God be, uh, uh, you know, essentially loving? Mm. And I think that's one of the difficulties there because it seems to me if, if we want to say that God is essentially loving, there must be some other for God to love. Well, if there's some other for God to love, it can't be something that's outside of God. Otherwise, God would need something outside of himself in order for God to be um, actualized here. Right. And so in that sense, uh, I would take it, if we want to take it that God is a necessary being, which he is due, and that God is essentially loving, well, I think that the Trinity itself provides a good explanation for that. And, and so um, what I really want to get at in this chapter is that at, at the center of all reality is a loving relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. It's this self-giving love. And, and so what, what this does when we think about the Trinity, is it, it, it itself provides, um, it provides, uh, I think, a model for how we are to think about um, ethics itself um, and, and morality. Uh, that at the at the, the center of, uh, of of who we are and what we were meant to be to reciprocate this love, God created us to reciprocate this love. That we ourselves are to have this. Uh, this love uh, that uh, goes out from the self, it looks out for the good of the other person. Um, and and if, if that's the very heart and nature of who God is, and then he created us to be to have that same kind of love. Um, but I would also argue that that would also require that we have a certain form of freedom, uh, a freedom that can uh, love like God and that can reciprocate, but which also means that we can... Um, retaliate against God and so forth. Uh, and, and so so that's a, that's a part of, of, of the argument there. Um, and, and also, I think, uh, looking at it from a Trinitarian perspective, that, um, that we think about Christ and what Christ did on the cross in defeating evil itself. And, and so Christ was, uh, it's, you know, in the incarnation, he became like us, uh, and yet through the resurrection, he ends up defeating evil. Mm. Amen. So, Curtis, before I ask the last question, do you have any follow-up on any of the questions we've, we presented? No, I, I think everything's going good here. The one thing that I do, it's it's kind of like you were saying, you know, the, they got every worldview has to answer this, this question of evil. Um and I think that's actually a very powerful apologetic for being able to explain uh, theism and then work your way into Christianity um, from that point. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that uh, one of the things I try to do in the book is to explain evil from how that worldview understood it, not to assume a, the theistic understanding of evil as the privation of the good or something like that. So, so for example, a panentheist, a process panentheist, uh, they're going to see evil almost more as uh, aesthetic than they do moral. Uh, mm -hmm. Because uh, just the nature of process metaphysics requires um, more and more intensity in order to maintain the unity. And so that it's, it's maintaining that intensity is where the aesthetic part comes in. And so that's what creates the unity and so evil is is kind of uh, moving outside of, of that, uh, keeping that unity and so forth. 
Dr. Campbell, last question for you. If it seems like if there's one certainty in our age is that everything seems to be uncertain. Um, a lot of people are struggling with um, many different issues, uh, many different concerns. How does this knowledge benefit us, especially concerning the uncertainties of life? Yeah, so um, I think one of the things that I really want wanted to capture in the book that really addresses that that very issue is, you know, we think about the problem of evil, you have the intellectual problem, but you also have something called the existential or the religious problem. And I think really at the heart of it, most of us wrestle with the existential problem. Why is this happening to me? Why, or the religious problem, why is this happening to one of my loved ones? Mm. You know, why is my, you know, why, why is my friend dying from cancer? Or, uh, you know, why did this have to happen to my family? And, and you look at that, and, and I think that's really what most of us are struggling with. And so what I really wanted to capture in the book is like, look, God, he doesn't just leave us. Uh, he's not like the deistic God who just kind of stands far off. But he's the kind of God who gets in the midst of evil. As N.T. Wright says, he gets his boots muddy and he gets his fist bloody. Uh, the idea that, you know, what God has been doing throughout salvation history is that he has been um, working to defeat evil. And, and in Christ, what, what he did in Christ is, um, you know, he, he took on the full weight of what the world had to offer and it's so that he could offer this this new life to everyone right mm -hmm. and, and so i i think that if if there's any one takeaway is that he's he's the god who gets in the midst of 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 this fight uh with evil and not only that we think about um the spirit the spirit of god right, who indwells believers, who empowers believers in the church to be a part of, uh, you know, God's uh, thwarting of evil in the world. Um, you know, we're standing up against injustice and, and preaching the gospel and, and, and uh, proclaiming the truth of who he is, but also helping the poor and the, the, the orphans and the widows in the time of their distress. I mean, that's what James says, right? This is pure and undefiled yep, religion yep. inside of our God and Father uh, to keep oneself unstained by the world and to mm -hmm. take care of widows and orphans in their time of distress. And, and so what I see is that Christianity provides for us not only the intellectual um, uh, satisfaction for saw or for for answering the problem of evil or this phenomena of evil, but but also God uh, meets us where it hits us existentially that right. He empowers us. It, well, first of all, what He's done through Christ, but He also empowers the church uh, to confront the evil in the world. And, and so uh, that's kind of uh, the bit about the the last part of it. But not only that, when you think about Revelation 21, one of my, my favorite passages in the whole Bible where uh, it says, you know, like, behold, I'm making all things new. Mm -hmm. You know, God himself is going to wipe away every tear. Uh, there's not going to be any more pain, suffering, and evil. And you couple that with the resurrection, that God cares for us so much that 
he came and took on our humanity so that we can have new life and ultimately to have uh, resurrected life. Amen. And, and you think about that, that is a message that we need to hear, that we, there is a God who cares for us. Not only can, not only does he care for us, but he's a God who can do things about it. I mean, he's a God yep. who can act in the world, and like, say, pantheism, right? The God of pantheism can act in the world. The God of process panentheism, all that he can do is just try to lure people to do things. But he can't really bring about, uh, you know, uh, healing to the world, can't bring about final judgment, uh, can't make the, the wrongs of the world right. Uh, but the God of Christianity can do that. Amen. Well, Dr. Campbell, it has been an honor and privilege. As as we said last time, and it is so true, you have an open invitation. All of the podcasts you do with us are fantastic. And so we want to encourage everyone to go out and get a copy of Dr. Ronnie Campbell's book, Worldviews and the Problem of Evil, A Comparative Approach. And you will be, trust me, this is a wonderful book. You will not be disappointed. Go get your copy today. And so we'll turn it over to Curtis at this time. Well, we here at Bellator Christi want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayers at this podcast help stretch your mind. It's a place to strengthen your faith, to start a great atmosphere discussion, and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christi podcast. Until next time, Ryan and I say, soldier on, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christi podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristi.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christi Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi Podcast and BellatorChristi.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Did you know that you can help the Bellator Christie Ministries by simply leaving a review? If you are enjoying this podcast, help us out by leaving a positive review on the app where this podcast is found. This helps increase the exposure of the podcast and helps others find it more easily. If you enjoy this podcast, leave a review. If not, send me an email. Either way, we want to thank you for supporting BellatorChristie.com and the Bellator Christie Podcast.